In November of 1980, DC Comics published a new adventure in Weird War Tales, starring the weirdest warriors of World War II. It was only a matter of time before someone made a podcast about that comic. This is that podcast. We call it Podcast M. Listen up, freak shows. I'm Continuity Sergeant Lawson here, your instructor for this podcast. From now on, you will only speak when you're spoken to, and the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Sir, yes, sir. If you have a problem with that, if you think I'm being too rough, anytime you think I'm being tough, anytime you miss your mommy, quit. You sign your 1240A, you get your gear, you delete the podcast, and you take a stroll down washout lane. Do you get me? Sir, yes, sir! Now what's your name, soldier? Private James Hickson, sir! And what is your mission, soldier? To talk about Creature Commando Comics, sir! That's right. I expect the best, and I give the best. Now here's the entertainment. That's an order. Sir, yes, sir! At ease, soldier. And so, welcome to what is our very first episode of Podcast M. That's right. It's a Creature Commando cast. Right. Starting from the very beginning with Weird War Tales, working our way all the way through each appearance of those crazy, monstrous World War II-era soldiers who are becoming an increasingly important part of the DC universe. That's right. Uh, you know, James Gunn made the announcement, what is it, last month? Yes, as we record this last month. Yeah, yeah. so we're, we're we're hitting when the iron is hot. And That's right. What better way to launch an entirely new podcast? That's right. And of course, hopefully, you're going to be on board for this. We have some fun stories to talk about this episode. We'll be looking at the first three appearances of the Creature Commandos, and we'll even have a special guest a little later in the episode. We actually have the co-creator of the Creature Commandos, J.M. Dimiteus, joining us again to talk about these weird warriors. And just to give you a little context as we, we get into things, they are appearing in a book called Weird War Tales, which was an anthology series. It was World War II stories mostly, although they'd occasionally tell stories of other wars, mm-hmm. but mostly World War II, but always with an angle that brought in sci-fi or horror or mystery or something like that. So it's sort of Sergeant Rock meets Tales from the Crypt and or Twilight Zone. Yeah, it, it's very much in the model of the Bronze Age horror stories. Mm-hmm. This is still, despite being 1980, this is very much still the Bronze Age. Yes, yes. We are We are very much, in terms of DC Comics, we are in a pre-crisis mode. <laughs> oh, definitely pre-crisis. In fact, I'm not sure which version, which, 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 which Earth is this? This, I think, is considered Earth 1. Okay. Because <laughs> if you go to the DC fandom wiki and look up the character Death... The death that hosts Weird War Tales is the Earth-1 version of death pre-crisis. Okay, so not the Neil Gaiman death. Sure, right. This this is a skeleton in military garb. Although, I've always wanted someone to go back and do a story that makes this version of death an aspect of the Endless. <laughs> like, that's the version of death that appears to soldiers or whatever. Just like how there was that one Sandman story where... A dream could appear as a cat to other cats. Mm-hmm. I want like I want the version of that for death 
that, that ties in weird war tales. Would she be a goth girl in goth military gear? I mean, I would not be opposed to that, but that's, really that's reasons entirely separate yeah, from storytelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, and, and of course, you know, we, we, we start getting into all kinds of weird stuff about death in the DC universe because there's what the Black Racer of the Fourth World. Yeah. There's uh, the Black Flash, yep. the Flash of, of Speedsters. Uh, death is complicated. But here, death is a horror host. Yeah. For war stories. Yeah. And he's a skeleton and he wears a military outfit. And because this is an anthology, Creature Commandos was just one slice of the pie. Oh, yeah. And they come kind of they come kind of late in the run for Weird War Tales. This this book started in the 70s, but they don't show up until the 80s. And they're part of a, an attempt to bring in some ongoing stories to the book. Uh, which Mr. DeMatteis will, will tell us all about in a little bit. Yep. But but in addition to Creature Commandos, they had recurring stories like G.I. Robot, like The War That Time Forgot, which actually predates Weird War Tales as a book. That that goes all the way back to an earlier book called Star Spangled War Stories. Wait a minute. Is that with the island? Yeah. Oh, that explains why they're both. In, OK, never mind. We'll come back to it. Yeah. <laughs> You, you pieces are fitting together, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, Weird War Tales, a really interesting title, especially in those last three or four years of its run, where they got, one, a little more into ongoing stories with some continuity, but also just they really started throwing things at the wall to see what would stick. And Creature Commandos was one of those things that amazingly stuck, and stuck longer than the book, because these characters have outlived weird war tales as a concept they've even outlived world war ii with <laughs> sure <laughs> more recent stories appearing in the modern day right and 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 they've evolved into things like the new 52 frankenstein and the agents of shade concept which is sort of a similar idea but with different characters so yeah they have become kind of an important part of the weirder side of the dc universe with tv appearances and animated appearances and uh, Matthew Shrive showed up in the Arrowverse at one point. Oh, God, he did. Oh. Mm. <laughs> uh, Arrowverse interpretations of characters get weird sometimes. They do. Especially and the that m- version is pretty far. That, that version is pretty far removed from what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Although he was an asshole. So sure. But to start things off, to lead us into the Creature Commandos index. We're going to begin with their first appearances, and those are in issues 93, 97, and 100 of Weird War Tales. That's right. So we'll be right back after these messages. Freaks? Are we calling our listeners freaks? Um, huh. You guys know who you are. We need something clever. You guys know who you are. You're freaks. (laughs) We will be right back after these messages, freaks. Tell me his name again. Thanos. I think I shall call him... Adam. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. Five years and going strong. Every other week. Mostly. For all of your Adam Warlock, Thanos, or Marvel Cosmic needs. Find it on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available. Resurrections at a Warlock.tumblr.com. 
Adam Warlock. You cannot keep leaving your philosophy books open on the floor. I always trip on them in the middle of the night on my way to the can. Lee Marvin, Ernest Borgnine, Robert Bryan, Jimmy Brown, Charles Bronson, John Cassavetes, Trini Lopez, Richard Jacob, Robert Weber, Clint Walker, Ralph Meeker, Kelly Savalas, Dirty Dozen in Panavision Metro from MGM. Welcome back, freaks. Our first issue of this episode is Weird War Tales, Volume 1, 93. Cover date on this one is November 1980. Cover artist is Joe Kubert, and ooh, it's lovely. Writer is Jan Demetrius. Penciler is Pat Broderick. Inker is John Salerdo. Colorist is Adrian Roy. Letterer is Ben Oda. Editor is Lynn Ween. Executive Editor, Joe Orlando. Uh, and if you're familiar with our other show, Tomb of Ideas, we're going to do this one a little bit off the cuff. In a military base in somewhere in the Midwest, all the Army top brass is brought in for a special demonstration by one Lieutenant Matthew Shrive of U.S. Army Intelligence. Shrive explains that the U.S. Army has started looking into the darker side of things and has decided to create an unusual team, one made up of those things that go bump in the night. The first of these new creature commandos, as it were, is Warren Griffin, a 4F Oklahoma farm boy who suffers from lycanthropy, which Army scientists have managed to manifest as, as an actual werewolf. Next is one Sergeant Vincent Velcro, who have demonstration of vampire bat blood and chemicals the army has made into, well, a vampire. And then there's Private Lucky Taylor, who, despite his nickname, managed to step on a landmine. But don't worry, the army's managed to stitch him back together again as a patchwork monster. They are... One general is kind of outraged, thinking this is all kind of like Hollywood play-acting, but one transformation by Velcro proves that that is not the case. Convinced, the creatures go on a mission into a castle in France. There, the creatures storm the castle and are shocked to find, waiting inside for them, none other but Franklin Delano Roosevelt? But Shrive isn't fooled and immediately unloads his machine gun on the commander-in-chief, revealing him to not be FDR, but instead a robot duplicate. In fact, the lab's full of robot duplicates. Eisenhower, Stalin, Churchill, all ready to take the place of world leaders and become Nazi puppets. The creature commandos fight a horde of Nazis, fight their way out of the castle just in time as the castle explodes behind them. A charge apparently being set by Shrive beforehand. Velcro has it out with Shrive, saying you were willing to sacrifice us for the sake of this mission. And Shrive's like, damn right. And they're like, you know, Shrive, maybe you're really the monster here. The end. There's also a really great uh, Twinkies ad where Batman takes out the League of Assassins with Twinkies. I see. I have the trade. I, I don't have. Uh, I don't have the individual issues. I, I've been bouncing. I've been bouncing between the original issue and, and the trade. I, I will say the uh, the digital presentation of the trade is really nice. I, I 
uh, I think the colors pop really well uh, in in the digitized version. They really do. It is, I think, a, a solid introduction. Yeah, really solid. It's a really good concept. Mm-hmm. Like, it kind of seems like the aha, of course concept, you know? Like, it makes absolute sense that you would do this title. Yes. Uh, there, there are a couple things that, that come to mind if you're going to do a book about weird war stories. One of them is this, yeah. Monsters in the War. The other one is is a robot soldier. And yeah. this book ended up using both of those things. Was ha- G.I. Robot predates Weird War Tales, but yes. Now, was Haunted Tank part of Weird War Tales? I, it, it came earlier, I think. Like G.I. Robot, like The War That Time Forgot, I think it predated the title. The Haunted Tank began in the 60s. Okay. And it started in G.I. Combat. Okay. But that's another Robert Kaniger creation. That's a name that shows up a lot in these war stories. Okay. Robert Kaniger. And... Isn't Robert Kaniger the one who created the Black Bomber? Sounds right. He took over scripting of Wonder Woman from William Marston. So he was sort of the second main writer on that book. He created Sergeant Rock. He wrote the Justice Society in All-Star Comics. He introduced the Golden Age Black Canary. And yeah, starting in 52, he wrote the big five DC war books. So G.I. Combat, Army at War... Our Fighting Forces, Men of War, and Star-Spangled War Stories. And so he worked on the original version of Suicide Squad. He was involved in the creation of The War That Time Forgot. He co-created The Metal Men, apparently. Wow. Enemy Ace, The Losers, The Unknown Soldier. Yeah, this guy basically single-handedly created the the war wing of, of DC Comics. And for those of our listeners who aren't familiar, because, again, you know, we don't often delve into DC side of things. The Black Bomber yes. was a character concept when DC Comics was looking into creating their first black superhero. Right. And the idea was that he was a white bigot who, after a, you know, weird science accident... Whenever he becomes angry, becomes a black superhero called the Black Bomber. Right. Which they... T- um, and I'm not finding creative credits on, on that one. And, you know, if one of our listeners, correct me if I'm wrong here, they took the idea to Tony and Isabella after it being developed in-house, and they're like, hey, you want to write this? And Tony and Isabella said, hell no! <laughs> and instead ended up creating Black Lightning. Although evidently Dwayne McDuffie ended up putting a version of the character called the Brown Bomber in an issue of Justice League. That makes sense. In the 2000s. Because Dwayne McDuffie was awesome. Yes. And he's exactly the right person to turn that concept on his head. But it was, (laughs) Isabella's right. It is completely the wrong idea for the first black superhero. Yes, yes. Yes, they they dodged a bullet there with with that. Anyway, getting back to, to Creature Commandos. The, the thing I keep coming back to, and part of it is because it is a reduced page count, because it's one story in an anthology. This story plays an awful lot like a TV pilot. Oh, yeah. Like, you get the character introductions, where you sort of learn what each character's deal is, and they get a moment to sort of showcase their abilities in a controlled setting. Mm-hmm. And then you send them off on their first mission. Yeah. And that that's very sort of 70s, 80s network television. In fact, this would have made a fantastic 80s TV show. Yeah, it would. Like yeah, it would. A, a Don Carlini. Who's the guy who did all the shows in the 80s? Andrew, we need you. 
<laughs> yeah, Andy Leyland is is the expert on this era of television. But but I, I'm thinking like Stephen J. Cannell type stuff. Yeah, he did the A Team, right? He did. He did the A Team. Yeah. He did Renegade. He did Rockford Files. Yeah, like <laughs> let's go back in time. Pitch a Creature Commando series. Well, what we do is we go back in time and we've somehow set up a lunch meeting between J.M. DeMatteis and Stephen J. Cannell. <laughs> But yeah, this would have been a great, like, 80s... And you can imagine it being done with, like, 80s special effects, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and even the, the art style kind of lends itself to that. Yeah. When when the general first says, I'm supposed to be scared of these guys in Hollywood makeup or whatever, it's like, well, they do kind of look like that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like Lucky looks very much like the Boris Karloff Frankenstein. Yeah. The, the werewolf design is interesting. It's neither as... Hollywood style as Werewolf by Night, mm-hmm. nor is it as dog-like as Manwolf. No. Kind of its own thing. Yeah. It's actually a little bit more modern, mm. the, the Werewolf design. I'm wondering, was this before... No, it was definitely before American Werewolf in London. Only just. Werewolf in London and Howling were both 1981. So yeah, just. But like, they wouldn't have been visual influences, right? Certain, Almost certainly not. Not unless there were like... Pictures in movie magazines or something, which I don't think they would have done. Not for not probably for, not. not for those transformations. Not because remember, like the werewolf, uh, American Werewolf in London transformations, like one of the big selling points. So they would have they wanted to put that in trades. That was what they sort of built up everyone's expectations about. Yeah, yeah. I love the reveal of the robot FDR. Yes, uh, that that's just a fun moment. That that again speaks to the the way that these stories are going to work. They're monster stories. They're not necessarily scary stories. The reveal of FDR is great, but then just the next panel, just Shrive just unloads on him with a Tommy gun. Yep. yep. Mind you, <laughs> Shrive does kind of seem like the kind of person who would just unload on FDR in the first place with machine I got gun. your new deal right here, buddy. Goddamn socialist. <laughs> it's fun. I'm not that convinced by their Winston Churchill. Yeah, no, not really. <laughs> Stalin's pretty good. Uh, it's all in the mustache. Right, right. <laughs> We're also setting up some things that will continue to recur, mostly Shrive being an ass who's all about the mission and has no empathy for his soldiers because as far as he's concerned, they're no longer human. Yep. Also, Velcro being surprisingly empathetic despite his vampiric nature. Yeah, and the kind of conflict being set up between shrive and velcro mm-hmm. in fact the the movie that kept on coming to my mind when i was reading this was the dirty dozen sure and velcro seems to me to be like john cassavetti's character mm-hmm. victor r franco okay yep yep it's been a minute since i saw the movie yeah but but i remember the character yeah but like the relationship he has with shrive kind of reminds me of Franco's relationship with Lee Marvin's character. Mm-hmm. Shrive is no Reisman. <laughs> right, right. Lee Marvin's character in Dirty Dozen is a little bit, at least a little bit sympathetic. Um, not so much yes. with Shrive. Yeah, Shrive, at this point especially, has been given no redeeming qualities at all. Like, we're not given much of a reason to like him. No. In fact, the comic seems to encourage us not to like him. No. And I think that actually leads us fairly well into our next issue. So we're going to take another quick break and come back with a look at Weird War Tales 97 after these messages. 
The Long Halloween. Hush. Dark Knight Returns. The Killing Joke. These are all Batman stories that have been talked about and talked about countless times over the years. They are considered classics, and in most cases, that title is fitting. The thing is, Batman is nearly eight decades old, and whilst those stories are worth talking about, there are plenty of other Bat comics that are being attacked and overlooked. And that's where we come in. Hi everybody, my name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Andrew Leyland. Andy and I decided that it was a crime that there were so many great Batman stories out there that weren't getting their due. To that end, we started a show, The Overlooked Dark Knight. Our goal is to talk about the previously mentioned Overlooked stories and tell you why they're worth your time. The show can be found at the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network, which is located at www.fortressofbailitude.com. The Overlooked Dark Knight. Shining a bat signal on the bat stories that no one seems to remember or care about. Because somebody has to. Welcome back to Podcast M. A Creature Commandos podcast. No, 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 no. You're not saying it right. You're not saying it right. <laughs> okay, okay. okay. We're, we're, I'm new at this. I am new at this. Welcome back, freaks. They know okay. what they are. They need to be told. <laughs> okay, I'll start from the top. Okay. Welcome back, freaks. That's right. You're listening to Podcast M, a Creature Commandos podcast. And our next issue is Weird War Tales, Volume 1. Number 97. Now kick some dirt on him or something. Drop and give me 20. 20? That's Nancy push-ups! Drop and give me 100! Cover date on this issue is March 1981. The writer is once again J.M. DeMatteis. Pencils and inks by Fred Carrillo. The colorist is Adrian Roy. The letterer is Esfidi Mahilum. Apologies to the letterer because I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, the cover, which is nice, is by Ross Andrew and Romeo Tonghal. And we open in the French countryside. Occupied France. German soldiers are driving along the road as a large bat makes its way overhead. Once it's out of view of the Germans, the bat transforms into uh, the vampiric uh, officer Velcro. Uh who reports back to the rest of the creature commandos. Velcro verifies that their intelligence was accurate, the Germans are exactly where they're supposed to be, and he's pretty sure of where they have Dr. Frederick locked up. And so, Shrive leads the creature commandos forward, although initially Lucky does not want to go. Lucky is dragging his feet until Velcro tells him that... Uh, it may not their their orders may not make much sense, but they have to do as they're told. That they've been created by the government to do these missions, and Lucky is angry about this, but he does follow along. Velcro ambushes the German soldiers, and Lucky takes the direct approach and 
literally throws their entire Jeep into the sky. Griffith then leaps on the hood of one of the other trucks, smashes through the windshield, and jumps away with the helpless German soldier inside. And they tear open the rear doors of the truck, and they retrieve Dr. Frederic. She asks why there's a bunch of monsters around, because... Honestly, that would be my first question, too. <laughs> and Shrive basically says, I'll explain later. Let's just, let's get moving. So they begin making their way to the rendezvous point in a, in a French town. It's several days' journey, and along the way, Shrive and the doctor debate the merits of treating your enemy as human, with Shrive taking the position that all Nazis are pigs, and she kind of takes a bad people on both sides kind of approach to things. Yep. It's it's a weird conversation. It is a weird conversation. And one panel suggests that it might be turning romantic, which is also weird, but I think that's just the art and the dialogue doing two different things. Well, I'll talk about that after your summary, but... <laughs> In the meantime, a pack of wolves approaches, and the Creature Commando's resident werewolf is into action and violently kills all of the animals. Violently. It's more than a little upsetting. More than a little upsetting. And he's very annoyed when he runs out of wolves to kill. What? No more? They continue forging ahead with Lucky moving debris out of the way. They arrive at the French village, which seems to be peaceful. And as they're entering, the doctor hangs back, thinking to herself that you'll be dead by then, my sweet Americaner, unless... And in that instant, a psychic dam bursts in a young woman's mind, and she rushes forward, shouting for the soldiers to come back. She says, no, turn back, it's a trap. The whole affair was engineered to draw you here. I'm not the real Dr. Frederic. I am one of the... And at that point, she is gunned down. It turns into a bloodbath with the creature commandos fighting against the Nazis who were waiting to ambush them. And eventually... The commandos are left surrounded by dead bodies. Griffith says that that made his day. He enjoyed the bloodshed. Yep. Velcro asks if they should bury the doctor. And Shrive coldly asks what the hell for. He denies having ever cared for her, says that Velcro is crazy to think so, and orders them to move out and leave the Nazi pig where she belongs. All while shedding the, the little tear. Right. The one tear runs down his face as he turns away from his monster men. The, the manly tear. A single man tear slips down his face He shows emotion without a trace He hides behind a mask so strong Yeah, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I've seen Sergeant Fury cry that tear before. Yeah, that's why he took out that eye. No tears! <laughs> right. <laughs> also, uh, just for what it's worth in the original issue, this time the Twinkies ad involves Superman saving a space capsule or satellite or something. Oh, nice. Nice. I'm really upset the trade doesn't have the Twinkie ads. <laughs> I, I kind of think that they were trying to imply the romantic relationship between Shrive and the fake doctor. I think there's just not enough pages for it. I think it's just, it's only as far as any time a man and a woman get together in wartime, you gotta, gotta jump a little bit of romance. And there, there are those brief moments, like when she first sees the monsters and she sort of clutches Shrive's chest and gets close to him. Yes. You get those moments like that, but because the page count is so short, 
there isn't enough time to develop her as a character or to really get any sense of their relationship besides that initial antagonism. Yeah. This is a much more cynical story than the first one. So you kind of worry like they're going to do the whole who's really the monsters sort of thing here. But then they're very clear right. at the end. No, it's the Nazis that are the monsters. Just just so we're clear, the Nazis are the monsters. Right. right. Shrive is an asshole and the Nazis are monsters. And both of those things can be true. Yes. Because, you know, like you said, she's kind of making the both sides argument here. But she's still saying like... like almost, almost literally pointing at the, the vampire and like both sides. <laughs> yeah. But no. Well, actually the werewolf. The werewolf is the one who's upsetting in this story. No, the policy is always punch Nazis. Yes, yes. It's it's a war tale. It is. You could, it is. You could have easily done it. I could easily see this as like a Nick Fury and his Howling Commandos story. 100%, yes. Just take out the monsters. And, and even taking out the monsters, you wouldn't have to work that hard to make the story work. No. You just have her be appalled at the level of violence they used to get to her. Yeah. I am more than a little... Surprised. I mean, I guess it's 1980. I, I mentioned it in the summary, but the violence against the wolves, the, that scene of Griffith just tearing the wolves apart like, is There are chunks of meat coming off of them. Yep. And there's blood running down his mouth at the end of it. Yep. And he basically behaves exactly the same way in the fight with the Nazis. Yeah. Of course, estimated wolves' corpses, white. We don't get anything that disturbing with the Nazis. Right. But wow, that is that is some horror comic stuff right there. Yes, yes. I, I said in the first issue that, that it was monsters but not scary. Here, I don't know that it's scary, but it's certainly gruesome. Yeah, the most gruesome GIs of World War II. Yeah, that, that, that's got a ring to it, actually. Yeah. And and the, the one thing that this story suffers from a little bit is you, you do wish they had at least one or two more pages because I don't think we get to know the Doctor well enough at the beginning to sort of justify the turn at the end. Yeah. It, it, it's a little out of nowhere because of how abbreviated the story is. I think it works. I just think it, you, you're required to fill in a lot of gaps in your head. I suppose so. But really, how many more pages do we need of saying, well, you know, there are some actually very nice Nazis. Yeah, I, I don't know that we needed that necessarily. I just think that that because she's taking that approach so early, as a reader, I already don't trust her. Mm-hmm. And so when the turn happens at the end and she says it's an ambush, it's like, well, okay, that checks out. Like, I'm not I'm not necessarily surprised by that. Do you think maybe it would have been better if we got a little bit of, like, maybe Shrive questioning things and uh, being like, well, you know, maybe she's – maybe, you know, we're all humans and he's – like, at least we're human and, like, these monsters here. Like that or or just a little bit more of an obvious build of their romantic connection, whatever it was. Yeah. One of those two things. Some Something to soften her character in the middle before we get the turn. I gotcha. Again, it's not that the story needs it. The story works as written. It's just, I think, that that's the one thing that if it was not, what, eight pages in an anthology, that's the thing that you would add. Yeah, this is true. Well, you know, if you want something with more pages, <laughs> our third issue is a super length special. So why don't we go ahead and go to another break, and we'll be right back with Weird War Tales number 100, right after these messages. Creature Commandos! 
Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus. We started with the very first issue, and our coverage goes all the way through breakdowns. We're going issue by issue in release order, tackling two comics per episode, both a Justice League America issue and a Justice League Europe issue. Now, along the way, we're also taking time out for special episodes covering the quarterly book, interviews with various comic book creators, discussing the plethora of spin-off series, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and more. And when we're all done, we'll wrap up our coverage by looking at the 2003 and 2005 stories formerly known as the Justice League, and I can't believe it's not the Justice League. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Batman. Martian Manhunter. Captain Atom. Fire. Ice. Rocket Red. The Flash. The Elongated Man. Maxwell Lord. Elrond. Power Girl. Renard de Rousse. I mean, Crimson Fox. Guy Gardner. Metamorpho. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort! Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Attention! Attention, dinosaur fans! If you're just wild about Brontosaurus, Stegosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, and every other kind of saurus, Videosaurus has the dino show for you. Son of Dinosaurs is a delightful one-hour video about the world's last living dinosaur egg, and it's just about to hatch. Join the fun adventures of our soon-to-be dinosaur dads as they travel around the world in a search to discover everything they can about these prehistoric reptiles before the amazing arrival of the world's cutest baby. And for a limited time, Son of Dinosaurs comes complete with a dinosaur activity book. Plus the enchanting music for Dinosaurs Cassette. Get this exciting dinosaur adventure for your family. Welcome back, freaks. You see? You, you see how I did it there, Trey? I, I see. Yeah. I see how it is. Yeah. I, yeah. I understand the format now. Okay, good. And we are back with our third and final issue for this episode. It's... Weird War Tales number 100, as the cover advertises the sensational 100th issue. A super link special, the creature commandos invade the war that time forgot. So, what I didn't realize, Trey, <laughs> when mm-hmm. I originally read this, these were two regular features that they had going on in this, at this combined time. yes yeah. and war that time forgot uh, at this point was a weird war tales feature but did predate that title okay it started out in star spangled war stories it showed up in i think a couple other titles too gi war tales maybe some of those might have been reprint but yeah we're celebrating 100 issues by telling one giant story that continues two different ongoing stories in the book. Yeah. And of course, if you have read DC The New Frontier, they pay tribute to the war that time forgot in that. In that case, it's the Losers, is the military team that ends up on the Dinosaur Island. Which, perhaps one of my favorite comic books ever, DC New Frontier. As far as giving a single, definitive streamlined telling of golden to silver age DC. It's hard to get much better than that book. Would you say more so than James Robinson's golden age? That's hard. I I like golden age too. I think it's got a little bit of the problem of always going to be compared to Watchmen. Whereas new frontier Mm. is so much its own thing. It very much is. Yeah. 
And it's just so stylized and, oh, so sleek. Just about the only time I've ever liked Hal Jordan is in that book. Yeah, exactly. Hal Jordan is a little bit perfect in that book. And I think right. I, I kind of feel like that's where Hal Jordan should stay, like somewhere in the 1950s and 60s. Or as one of the worst villains of the DC Universe, as he was in the 90s. Yeah. Anyway, somewhere on an uncharted island in the Pacific, some Japanese soldiers are unloading on the island when suddenly they are attacked by monsters. But maybe not the monsters you're expecting, because it's the creature commandos tearing these Japanese soldiers a new one. And as they are doing so, however, they are interrupted by dinosaurs! Uh, and, so, and somewhere, my inner six-year-old goes, Yay! <laughs> Just already in my head, like, there are competing soundtracks throughout the issue. <laughs> it keeps wavering between the Akira Ufukube Godzilla score and the Jurassic Park score. Ooh. And I don't know which one I prefer. <laughs> But the dinosaurs chase off the Japanese and the creature commandos, and we are given some flashback, which was revealed that some military reconnaissance patrols have gone and missing on the island, and the creature commandos have been sent to figure out what's going on. And of course, there they encounter the Japanese. There's some fighting of dinosaurs, fighty fight. Griffith unexpectedly turns back into a human being as he is sometimes prone to do and he is captured by the japanese the creature commanders have to rescue him they steal a japanese radio to radio their findings then they find that there is a uh, japanese fleet offshore so they hijack some pterodactyls yep and we'll talk about how they hijack the pterodactyls in a second because that's mm. But they are able to lead a basically a squadron of dinosaurs on an assault on the Japanese fleet, which the dinosaurs make quick work of. Um, Shrive is like, this intelligence for Army Intelligence is going to be great. We're going to tell them about these dinosaurs. It's going to become a great weapon of war for America. And Lucky's like, no. And toss... He not literally, though, because you know, Lucky can't talk. But Lucky tosses the camera into the sea, and Velcro says... You won't do to them what you've done to us. Not this time. And it's worth mentioning, this is the first Creature Commandos story that's not Dimitea's story. Right. So our credits on this one, it's Mike W. Barr. Yep. And I figured out why I like this issue. One, I, I generally like Mike W. Barr in this era. But also, just visually, it's Bob Hall inked by Jerry Ordway. Yeah. It's hard to get much better than... Dinosaurs and Monsters, drawn by Bob Hall and inked by Jerry Ordway. <laughs> yeah. And just to fill out the rest of the credits, it is John Costanza on letters, Adrian Roy on colors, and Lynn Ween, editor. Right. And it's a fun story. Yeah. It, it really is. Like, you are taking these two weird concepts of World War II, and you're mashing them together. You're getting... My chocolate into with my peanut butter, and then you're blowing it up. It's the thing where the kid has a bunch of dinosaur toys, and he's got a bunch of little army men, and like instinctively he just knows that you put the dinosaurs and the army men together, and and you're gonna have a good time. That that's a much better metaphor than mine, especially on my diet. <laughs> and and I just love the splash page 
with the dinosaurs charging in from the jungle and the the monsters tossing Japanese soldiers around in the foreground. It's real nice. The artwork's definitely different here. It's definitely it a is. different take. It's a little bit cleaner than the previous yep. two artists we've seen. I, I think this is the most like Universal's Frankenstein that Lucky has looked. He, he's definitely more like craggy here. I think mm-hmm. we've seen him before. He doesn't have the bolts, which is, I guess, good. Right, right. The, he, he's he's patchwork. He's stitched together, but he doesn't have the visible hardware, I guess. Yeah. It's worth noting that this story was adapted into an episode of Batman Brave and the Bold. That's right. It was. Batman Brave and the Bold was such a good show. Such a good show. You know, as comic fans, we all kind of freaked out about it when it first came out. I'll be honest. We all kind of did. Yep. Because it wasn't Batman, the animated series, DCAU universe. Right, right. And the implication at the time was that we weren't going to get any more of that. Right. Which I think did a disservice to the creators of Batman Brave and the Bold, honestly. Mm-hmm. Because it caused so much backlash to Batman Brave and the Bold. And also, it, w- it wasn't true. We got more right. DCMA universe stuff. Although I don't know if we're going to get yes. any more of it at this point, because sadly, of course, Kevin Conroy has passed, and he kind of was the heart of the DCAU. Right. I, I don't think you, you can do more of it without Batman, and without Kevin Conroy, it's just not DCAU Batman anymore. No. And in fact, as James Gunn has pointed out, you know, all animated projects going forward are going to be part of the new DCU media universe whatever they're calling it right with the with the allowance for elseworlds titles yeah like the matt reeves batman is an elseworld or the movie musical joker sequel that's co-starring lady gaga we talked about that you and i yesterday and i already forgot it was a thing (laughs) yeah yeah the movie musical thing just keeps sticking in my head. If it's got some good bops, I might like it. Sure. Weird thing about that Brave and the Bold episode. Griffith, Velcro, and Lucky are all voiced by D. Bradley Baker. Shrive is too, right? Shrive is Mark Warden. Oh. Um, who's a can- Canadian actor. Canadian. He also voiced Tony Stark in the Ultimate Avengers cartoon movies. Yeah. And... Played Worf's son, Alexander, on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Oh, nice! The, the older version that's serving on the Klingon ship? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There. That, that, that's better than the first example I gave, right? Yes, it is, <laughs> it is better than the first example you gave. Canadians. <laughs> and of course, when Shrive appeared on Arrow, he was played by the Beastmaster himself, Mark Singer. <laughs> Beastmaster. Also Canadian, I believe. Those damn Canadians. They're, they're <laughs> infiltrating everywhere. Next thing you're going to tell me, the most gosh darn American Starfleet captain ever, Captain James Tiberius Kirk, was Canadian. James? Yeah? I, I have some, some bad news for you there. Eh? Yep. Nay! More Canadian than a bowl of poutine. Nay! Do they serve poutine in a bowl? I don't actually know. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a plate. It's, it's good. I, I, honestly, it's good. It, you know, it's, it's potatoes and gravy. I mean, and cheese. Hard to go wrong with that combo. Yeah. Yeah, cheese curd. Uh, cheese curd's really good. Anyway. So monsters and dinosaurs. Yeah, monsters and dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> From the way we're going off topic, you'd think we were bored by this issue, but that's not true. It's fantastic. No, it's just hard to elaborate that, hey, 
Monsters and dinosaurs are awesome. Like, I am currently looking at a panel where a Frankenstein monster is breaking the neck of a brontosaurus. And then weeps a tear about it. Because he's just that nice a guy. Yep. These are really, like, they're very much DC characters. But they feel like Marvel characters in a lot of ways. The, The sort of tragic heroism of especially Lucky and Velcro feel a lot like Marvel characters. Yeah. And honestly, these characters could easily fit into the Marvel Universe. There's not enough continuity linking them at this point to DC Universe to be like, this is definitely DC Universe, children. Right. In fact, we were were talking about this between things, but but I don't know that they really tie into main DC continuity until Roy Thomas gets his hands on them in Young (laughs) (laughs) All-Stars. Uh, yeah, we talked about we, f- we figured this out over the break. There is a connection here with, according to DC Wiki, and we kind of have a problem with this. The DC Wiki says that creature commandos are firmly established as being in Earth One, but that because they appear in Young All Stars, that a version of them also existed in Earth Two. Yeah, we dispute that only insofar as. The issue of Young All-Stars that's cited, Volume 1, Number 12, is from 1988, May 1988. That's yeah. post-crisis. That is definitely post-crisis. And so by that point, the, the timelines have collapsed on each other, and there's only one DC World War II, and the Creature Commandos were in it. Yeah, the whole point of Young All-Stars was to be like, oh crap, I can't use any of the All-Star Squadron anymore. Right, right. It's We need to come up with analogs for... Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, so that we can keep telling stories. Yes, which they did, with mixed results, honestly. I like Young All-Stars. Okay. But, you know, this isn't the Young All-Stars cast, this is the Creature Commando cast, so... (laughs) Right. Those poor baby dinosaurs. Yeah, so Shrive, in order to stir up the squadron of of pterodactyls and such, machine guns a pterodactyl nest in order to draw the angry mama pterodactyl. And then he makes Lucky basically hijack the pterodactyl. And yeah, Velcro acts as bait to, you know, drive the pterodactyl towards the Japanese fleet. It's a very convoluted way of steering toward your your intended target. Honestly, it seems like the kind of plan a D&D party could come up with. This is true. This is exactly true. <laughs> this is, uh, Frankly, it's the kind of plan that Chris Pine's character would come up with in the movie. Yeah, guys. If you didn't know, both Trey and I have now seen the Dungeons & Dragons movie. And uh, we've not talked about it yet. I've, I've expressed my enjoyment of it to you. I have not heard whether you liked it or not. Oh, it was freaking great. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You, you knew I was going to love that movie. I I had my suspicions, but also you can imagine in between every scene, the people sitting at the table, like pleading their case to the dungeon master about why what they're going to try should work. Yeah. Like, I am really surprised and, you know, spoilers for the movie. I mean, not big spoilers, but there isn't a scene where, you know, you zoom out at the end and it's all a bunch of people sitting around a table. Rolling dice. Yes. Arguing with the Dungeon Master. But the thing is, is they could have. They could have. Like, at every moment of it, you can sort of feel, it feels like the decision's being made by people playing a tabletop game, and I love that about it. Yes. But this is also not a D&D podcast. I mean, 
I will get that phase rip game going at some point. I'm just saying. <laughs> yes. But you're you're absolutely right. The process of ensnaring the pterodactyl and having the bat in front of it as bait to steer it, that feels like a bunch of people who made really good dice rolls. <laughs> Yeah. It's also, again, it, it's it's the early 80s. All the dinosaurs have really sharp teeth, even if they're supposed to be herbivores. This is pre-Jurassic Park being like, okay, guys, let's get this shit straight. Right. And so all the dinosaurs are violent and lizard-like and angry. I guess you call that the dinosaurs. Yeah. Like that point where there was just like a dinosaur documentary on every, I don't know about you, Trey, but like, there were a lot of dinosaur documentaries on when I was a kid. And and kids' books be- became really big. Like, there were a lot more books with accurate information. Yeah. And they were hosted by the guy who was the voice of Space Ghost. Yes. Gary Owens. Yes. Of course, on the flip side of that, you had people like Roger Corman cashing in with Carnosaur. And even, like, the Gary Owens documentaries, and, like, the last episode of them, Gary Owens turned into a dinosaur. Oh, my. I think it's an Owensaurus or something. <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, the the story itself doesn't have quite the edge to it that the first two stories. Certainly, there are glimpses of it. The The last page or so with Lucky throwing away the camera with, with Velcro sort of angrily translating Lucky's actions for Shrive. That very much feels in keeping with the other two stories. But... It's mostly just about a good old-fashioned action romp with big monsters. Yes. It's really fun. It's monsters versus monsters. And of course, humans are the real monsters yes. all along. Oh, always. And, and again, in that respect, it's still very much in keeping with the themes that were established in the first two stories. This isn't a huge shifting of gears or anything. It's just... Because the scale gets so much bigger, the opportunities for that commentary are fewer, I guess. Yeah. Um, Also, for what it's worth, there is a Twinkies ad where Superman rescues some kids trapped in an old mine. And then afterwards, everyone enjoys Twinkies. Oh, God damn you. (laughs) And Jimmy Olsen's there. uh, I I, I want some Twinkie ads. (laughs) Crap, now I want Twinkies. Yeah. I'm going to regret that decision. <laughs> anyway. Good story. Great art. Uh, again, I like the art in all three of these, but I, I can feel the Jerry Ordway in this art. Yeah. Especially like some of the facial structures, some of the shading. Bob Hall's no slouch, but y- you can feel Ordway's work as anchor, sort of bringing out the best of it. Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah. And again, is is a lot more substantial in content because this issue, this uh, this one runs, what, 15 pages? Wow. <laughs> yeah, this is a 15-page story. Yep. And most of those extra pages are dinosaur action. Dinosaur action. <laughs> so, yeah, the creature commandos. I, having read these stories, uh, it's cool going back to the beginning because now I am hyped for whatever James Gunn has planned for the concept. I, you know, I'm a little bit nervous because I, I feel like it's going to be modern day creature commandos. I feel like it's going to be Maybe. a little bit Suicide Squad-y, which I didn't mind Suicide Squad. I, I That was a fun movie. I feel like it's going to be maybe involving a time jump. Mm. For one thing, it's connected to Suicide Squad mm-hmm. because Rick Flagg Sr. is involved. Yeah. 
and which which again he was originally part of the World War II Suicide Squad. Yeah. Also, it looks like Weasel is going to be a member of the team, which Weasel was in the James Gunn Suicide Squad movie. But the rest of the characters are monster characters. Frankenstein, the DC version of Bride of Frankenstein, G.I. Robot, Dr. Phosphorus, characters like that. So it does look like it's drawing a little more on New 52 version of the Creature Commandos. But that said, I'd like to think that there will at least be nods or references to the original members of the team that that we were just discussing. Griffith, Velcro, and Lucky. Partially because I just, I like a good World War II story. Sure. It's it's fun. And, And if we're filling out the DC universe, it would be cool to sort of give the history of that universe. Like That's one of the things that whether it was deliberate or not, was really smart in the MCU, was that pretty quickly they did a classic Captain America story set in World War II that it expanded the possibilities of that universe because it showed you could tell stories in the past, present, and future. Right, which they did with Captain Marvel yep. and, and Ant-Man to a certain degree. Yep. But also it kind of led to other things. For example, Captain America in the MCU leads to the creation of the Hulk. Yeah. Cause they, they connected it to the weapon plus program and the super soldier program and all that. So, yeah. which looks like it's go- going to be revisited in the captain America, new world order movie. Sure does. Because it looks like half the cast of the <laughs> incredible Hulk movie are in that cap sequel. Yeah. Not, not Ed Norton. No, no Ed Norton, but we've got Betty Ross. We've got the leader. Of course, Thunderbolt Ross had to be recast. Yeah. But Harrison freaking Ford, as President Ross. Ugh. I don't know if I could deal with a villain as President of the United States, Trey. I already lived for that <laughs> for four years. Just think of how angry his pointing will be. Uh, does he have baby hands? <laughs> but yeah, Creature Commandos. Good stuff. Good stuff. I, I, I enjoyed these. Yep. And... We're going to take another quick break, but when we come back, we'll be talking with the co-creator of the Creature Commandos, J.M. DeMatteis, right after these messages. Do you like comics? The 1960s? How about middle-aged gay couples gossiping about their neighbors? Then you'll love Checkered Past. A loving examination of DC's Go-Go Check branded comic magazines published from February 1966 to August 1967. I'm Dr. Bob. And I'm Dr. Husband. And each week we'll be your hosts on a trippy tour through mid-century four-color madness. Checkered Past. Available wherever fine podcasts are downloaded for free. He's flying into action on Universal Nut. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superboy. The Dean of Steel battles his deadliest foes ever. Clark and Lana enter a new world of danger every week, and only Superboy can save the day. My three passions are truth, justice, and the American way. I'm working on making it four passions. (laughs) Watch Superboy every Sunday at 5. On Universal 9. The Adventures of Superboy. Today at 5 on Universal 9. Welcome back, Commandos. We are here with our very special guest, this inaugural episode of Podcast M. It is, of course, the creator of the Creature Commandos, uh, J.M. DeMatteis. Thank you very much for joining us, sir. 
as well. Happy to be here. And and a month ago, no one would have ever introduced me that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very funny thing. It's a very funny thing. I will say they've they've never disappeared, which no, is, they, they, is which really is impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I was just looking the other day, and they, they show up in one of the DC animated shorts. The, the, the Sergeant they did Rock, one in like in the past, yeah, that was which is quite good, and they used them, I think, on Batman: Brave and the Bold. So they do, and then and there were a couple of other shorts along the way. So they they do keep popping up. That Brave and the Bold episode is a lot of fun. Yeah, so yeah, it's it's interesting what sticks around and what doesn't. But the spotlight that James Gunn shined on it was something completely different, for sure. Uh, so to take things all the way back to to where they started in Weird War Tales. Can you talk just a little bit about how that came to be? Was it something that that you pitched out of the blue? Were they soliciting things for Weird War Tales? Uh, it, actually, did... it was actually both those things because the original idea came when I first started selling stories to DC. That was how you broke in. You know that I always call it that was the vaudeville of comics, uh, House of Mystery, Weird War Tales, House of Secrets, all those those strange, goofy comics that I literally had never read. Until I, you know, I sent some stuff to DC. They said, well, if you want to pitch to us, you have to go pitch to Paul Levitz, who edits these books. And I'm like, I don't know what these books are. I better go out and buy some of them and read them so I can get a sense of what they're talking about. <laughs> so to, to, to very long story short, I started selling stuff to Paul and I was selling him some. And, and, you know, Paul's the one who really opened the door and got my career going. And I was selling them stuff for about five or six months. And one of the series, uh, one of the books that I'm pitching to is Weird War Tales. So yeah, I'm always scrambling for the next story. There, there's, there are five to eight page stories, you know, that we're selling. So you got to just keep coming up with ideas at the, at the exorbitant rate, might I add, of $13 a page, which, you know, and to be honest, at the time, I didn't even care if they were paying me at all. I was I was getting a foot in the door in the comic book business and I was learning. And that was all that mattered. Didn't even matter if they ever published the stories. The fact that Paul was working with me and teaching me was like an amazing thing. So I'm I'm looking for stories and I'm looking, well, this book is called Weird War. It just seemed like a no-brainer, this idea of kind of classic monsters fighting World War II. And I remember putting that idea together. And then what happened was the infamous DC implosion, if you guys know what that was. When DC cut, I don't know what it was, two thirds of their line or something crazy right, like that. Right. And the first people that were thrown out on their butts were the were the newest people. Like, you know, they were going to make sure they're getting work for the people that are their established people. And so the door just closed on me. I had no work for like I forget what it was eight or ten months. Yeah, it was probably yeah, it was probably like ten months because I remember that was like June of seventy eight, and I didn't get another gig out of them till the spring of seventy nine. Wow. When uh. They started a book called Time Warp, which Jack Harris was editing. It was a science fiction anthology. That got me back in the door, and that got me working with Paul again. And and then somewhere in that area, uh, Len Wein came aboard. And Len was uh, took over editing House of Mystery and Weird War, and maybe a couple of the other ones, but I know for sure House of Mystery and Weird War. And Len and I just had this instant writer, writer, editor chemistry. He, I, I've said this many times over the years, but, but it never stops being of great value and importance to me. Len saw something in me uh, that he wanted to nurture. He was the, he was the guy who said to me, you know, you're basically, you're not just another guy coming through here. You have something special, and I want to nurture that. And uh, he became not just my editor, but a mentor and a friend. Not that Paul wasn't a friend or Jack, you know, but it was a very special relationship with Len. And uh, so we're working together. And at a certain point, Len decided he wanted to have some ongoing series 
both in House of Mystery and Weird War Tales. In House of Mystery, I ended up creating I Vampire. For Weird War Tales, and there's a whole other long story around House of Mystery, but we won't get into that here. <laughs> Unless we run out of time to talk about Creature Commandos and I'm happy to tell you the story. <laughs> um, but so I thought of that idea that I had. I, and I pitched him this idea of these monsters fighting World War II. I don't think I had the title Creature Commandos. I think Len and I maybe came up with that together. Maybe Len came up with it. I came up with it. it was, I'll say that we both came up with it because I don't really remember. And it was as simple as that. And so then I just started writing weird war tales and went home and like developed, you know, developed the series, developed the characters. And like I said, it, you know, for, for a comic book called Weird War, kind of a no brainer. And I'm, I'm amazed that no one else thought of it before then. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad that no one did. Well, and, and since then, it's been often imitated. Marvel has had their Howling Commandos right, series right. over the years. And right. it's exactly. something that everyone else suddenly realized, oh, wait a minute, that's brilliant. And, and right. have done right. their own version. In my ignorance and stupidity, I was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't like you were like a World War II nut or even like a monster nut. It's really funny. I mean, you know, growing up in New York City, you know, Saturday morning, Sunday morning, all those classic monster movies were on TV. You know, Frankenstein and Dracula, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which I must have seen a hundred times, you know. Uh, I wasn't an aficionado. You know, some people like were really, really, really into that. I think I had an Aurora Frankenstein model at one point that I put together. Ooh, nice. Uh, if you remember those. I, I uh, had oh, the yeah. Dracula, so. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But it wasn't like, you know, like some people, monsters are really their thing. It wasn't that for me. But when you were selling to those books... That's what the stories were. There was horror. It was monsters. It was all that stuff. So, you, you know, oh, you want vampire? I don't know how many vampire stories I wrote for those books. You know? <laughs> and suddenly I became a vampire guy. All right. Vampires. That's kind of a cool metaphor. Let's play with that. So so it was just and, you know, I have to say, though, in terms of World War II, and I look back at this and I'm kind of amazed because I basically at heart a pacifist, you know, but as a kid, I loved war comics. I, I, you know, I read all the DC war comics, Sergeant Rock, especially I love Sergeant Rock, but Johnny Cloud, Haunted Tank, whatever it was, I, I read them all. And before I got into Marvel officially, the only Marvel comic that I read was Sergeant Fury because I love wow. war comics so much. And it's just so funny because now it's like, please keep that stuff away from I don't want to know anything about, you know, war stories and all that. I'm just not interested. I don't want to promulgate that. But I think also when I was growing up, so I'm like a kid in the mid 60s, say, and I'm 10 years old or whatever it was, you know, World War II was everywhere. You know, the TV shows, the documentaries, it was like, you know, even though it was whatever, have I heard many years, 20, it was, think about it, it was only 20 years in the past. Now you think about 20 years ago, it feels very recent, doesn't it, in a lot of ways. So it, it was just that shadow uh, and the gen my parents' generation that had gone through that. So World War II was kind of omnipresent. So that probably had permeated my, my consciousness quite a bit. And growing up, what did we play? We played cowboys. We played war. I had a helmet. I had a rifle. I had a belt. You know, we all had all those toys growing up that that I I hope they don't have anymore. You know, because the idea that war is a game and we get our plastic guns and our plastic helmets and shoot each other is kind of horrifying now. But, Snurf now, right? That, that's that's better. That's much better. But anyway, so you know, World War II was still something that 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 would permeated me growing up. I guess so. You know, monsters from those old movies. And World War II from from the constant barrage of World War II on television and in the movies, not to mention just the memories of the adults around me. So uh, all that went into that. But even then, I, 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 you know, looking back at those stories now, 
they were vehemently anti-war. I mean, I was, I was new. I, I make no claims for these being brilliant stories in any way, shape or form. I was still learning my craft. But if you read all those stories, every single one of them is an anti-war story. I was just looking at one of the early ones, and and especially through the the Frankenstein character, Lucky. Yeah. Like, things are so often framed through his perspective, which is silent, yes. with just sort of the expression of a tear or or a yeah. reaction of horror about what has happened. Um, right. And that, that- and, and, you know, it's like, uh, and again, I didn't think about it consciously then. I wasn't that smart. <laughs> but it's really, you know, the, the the monsters are the most human and the human that's leading them, Shreve, is the biggest monster of the bunch. Mm-hmm. And war itself is the biggest monster in those stories. So there, there's a there's a nice uh, subtext there that came obviously from my unconscious, not from my conscious mind, because I'm just trying to sell a story. Well, that, that's know? something I was actually wondering about, because the early stories do go out of their way to emphasize that the monsters are creations of, of military science. Yes. That the, yes. The, the military made them this way. Yes. Which on one level, a little bit reminded me of, of Marvel's Morbius, the, the sort of living vampire science experiment gone wrong. But as you just framed it, that also very much leads into this kind of metaphor of the, the creatures being the victims of war. Yes, exactly. Um, and and exactly. I, I was wondering to what degree that was sort of an early decision on your part, or if that just naturally evolved with the concept. I think it just naturally evolved. Uh, and again, this is so long ago. I'd love to tell you, I sat down and I was thinking this or I was thinking that. I, I, I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, but but all of that is absolutely in there. You know, all of that, that is absolutely in there. You know, the other thing I'm thinking about growing up is growing up with the Twilight Zone. And, you know, Rod Serling was someone who had lived through World War II, was also vehemently anti-war. And anytime there was a World War II story, the perspective was very much that. You know, th- th- we're not glamorizing war. War is not, you know, being a hero in war is nothing to boast about. War is hell. And God God help these poor guys that are in the middle of all this. And let's have compassion for them on both sides. You know, one of my favorite um, Twilight Zones is the one where it's toward the end of the war. And this American unit has got these Japanese guys pinned down in a cave. Now, the soldiers have been through it for like, you know, months and months and months and months, and they're exhausted. They just, the, the world's war's almost over. We know it's ending. Leave these guys alone. And they have this new lieutenant who wants to prove himself and he wants to go, you know, guns blazing. And then what happens is the lieutenant suddenly finds himself in the place of the of the Japanese uh, officer who's in that cave. And he suddenly sees the situation through the enemy's eyes and sees the whole war differently and in the end decides yeah let's let's and that's the kind of stuff that twilight zone and serling's writing had such a profound influence on me and and one of the cores of that is is that sense of compassion to see even the enemy with eyes of compassion hard to do when you're dealing with nazis but when you're (laughs) dealing with individual people that may be on the other side as opposed i'm not talking about hardcore nazis you know one of the (laughs) first stories i think i did for weird war tales was about a a guy who was in a Nazi death camp and the one guard there who's just some poor schmo who got drafted and stuck in this place and is trying to help this poor guy. You know, so you're always looking for that link of, of compassion and, and that window to say, I don't care what the cause is. The fact that we as a human race, you know, look at what's going on right now in the Ukraine. Are we still doing this? It's insane. What, you know, what are you know, what are the Putins of the world? What are they thinking? That right. you know, every time you think we've sort of grown up a little bit as a race, you turn around and you see stuff like this, and it's just it's just horrifying, and you don't want to glorify it in any way, shape, or form. 
So whether yeah. it was conscious on my part or unconscious, it was in my DNA at that point. So something I kind of realized when I was reading this is very much the influence of, say, like the World War II films of the 60s and kind of different vibe they had. Like there's a lot of the dirty dozen in the Creature Commandos. Am I wrong there? You know, probably I don't remember if I'd ever even seen the Dirty Dozen, but it was one of those things that everybody knew about it, whether you saw it or not. Yeah. You know, you you know, it's it's that basic premise of taking these these guys that are you know kind of living on the edge there, and well, this is your last chance. It's Suicide Squad, also is the same thing, right? Yeah. You know, this is your last chance. This is your one chance at redemption. Go out there and risk your necks in these impossible situations. So, sure, that's absolutely in there, absolutely. And and, and in a little bit of that shift, like as you said, World War II stories had been popular for decades, but I think perhaps maybe coinciding with Vietnam being on the news every night, but th- there was a yes. shift, there was a shift towards cynicism in war stories. Yes. So that's another thing. And I'm glad you brought that up because I'm thinking about, you know, the things that cooked my own consciousness. And of course, you know, growing up, that's exactly right. That was broadcast on the news literally every night you were there, you know, not seeing a glamorized version. You were seeing the real version the ugly version in a war that no one really quite understood what we were doing there in the first place, you know, and all of that's baked in. And I was of that anti-war generation. You know, I came up with that. So of course that's all going to come out in the stories. I got, you know, it makes these stories seem in a lot of ways, much more than they are, you know? Um, uh, and yet it's all in there at the same time. It's also sort of a, a culmination of an era because it, this was at a time where a lot of those classic war comic titles were winding down. They'd been around since the 40s and the 50s, and it was going into the late 70s, early 80s was when one by one they dropped off. And and Weird War Tales was one of the last ones to hang on. I wonder Um, how long did Sergeant Rock last? When did they they finally pull the plug? That's a good question, because that was another longer-lived one. Yeah, that was their their premier war title. Stop publication in... 77. And then he got a run of reprints from 88 to 91. Ah, okay. And then Joe Kubert, Joe Kubert, who did all the Southern Rock stories, did the cover for the first Future Commando story. It's a good cover. Yeah, it's a great yes. cover. It's wonderful. I, yeah. I, you know, when I go back to the conventions, I'm going to have to make a poster out of that one and, uh, <laughs> and have that on my table. Yeah, that's 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 fascinating. The, the 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 whole I'm now I'm thinking about it. it's like yeah it's my it's my entire childhood is coming out in these stories it's very interesting <laughs> going kind of from the creature commandos of more recent works um the the last issue of Lost Hunt came out just this past week uh yes very good miniseries I have to say thank yes. you thank you thank as you. a as a big fan of that era of Spider Man it was really fun to sort of. Go back to that time for a little bit. And that particular time was interesting because it hasn't really been explored. There was one miniseries that Fabian did, exploring uh, Peter and Mary Jane living in Portland. And, and that series ended with Peter depowered. Mm-hmm. So when they said, you know, I had done the Ben Riley series, they said, well, now let's look in on Peter and MJ at the same period. And first I was like, well, what's, what do we got? Oh, we've got Peter, Peter with no powers. That's interesting right off the bat to put him in a situation that he has to deal with without any of his powers. And on top of that, you got to revisit the Cravenoff family. Right. And that was, you know, they also said, and we'd like this somehow to tie into Craven. I was like, well, let me think about this. But I remembered that I'd had for the past couple of years, I'd had this character in the back of my head. Cause I'd always wondered about this, this piece in Craven's history. All right. So he's a Russian exile. He comes to the United States when he's a child. His mother dies in a mental institution. His father's a wreck of a person. And somewhere along the line, he becomes Craven the Hunter. And I realize there's a whole untold story there. 
And I started to develop this character of Asia Arisha, who is very important to the Lost Hunt story. Um, so it was an opportunity for me to bring this character forward and fill in this gap in Craven's history and, and hopefully, you know, play it all off against uh, Peter and Mary Jane. It was great to write Peter and Mary Jane again and write that marriage and these two people who are really partners and love and respect each other and support each other. I was always a big fan of the marriage and still am. It was just great, great to write them again. I don't think that era of Spider-Man gets enough appreciation. Like, I know that editing the Clone Saga had to be like one of the more daunting tasks for an editor because that whole storyline, of course, it lasted forever. Well, and it kept yeah. expanding and shifting and and there were all these sort of external reasons for that, I guess. There was there was a lot of behind the scenes melodrama. Yeah, I parachuted out maybe a quarter of the way through, I think. But it went on. I felt like it went on for 40 or 50 years after that, you know, <laughs> and a lot of that was because it was, you know, in the beginning it was selling very well. And we had we had an idea to get in there and finish it off rather quickly, maybe six months to a year at most. And the whole thing would be over. And marketing kept saying, extend, expand it, extend it, extend it. And even while that was the period when the bottom was dropping out of the market, but Spider-Man was still selling very, very well. And then, you know, then it was melodrama upon melodrama that that just went on and on and on and on until they it just kind of the whole thing just kind of collapsed in the end certainly not through the fault of the creative people involved there's just a lot of gold in there that people underappreciate because they're like they hear clones and they're like nope i'm out but like right most of those characters have all come back in one way shape or form you know know, ben (laughs) and kane and this one and that one and and so it's interesting uh and i think what happens is honestly this is sort of the, the thing of comics right Readers that were 10, 12, 13 years old when they were reading the Clone Saga, then they grow up and they become editors and professionals and whatever. Those are the comics they were reading and loving then. They don't have that prejudice against it that people did at the time. Mm-hmm. It's sort you know? of the the Star Wars prequel effect where the jaded fans who were watching the movies in the 70s and 80s didn't like the prequels but their kids did because that was right. their Star Wars. That, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that happens with, with so many things in pop culture. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, you know, all of a sudden you see this, this return of whatever. It's because there are a bunch of adults now who are reading that mm-hmm. or watching that when they were 12 years old and they want it back. And, and, and I will say in a lot of ways, what, what reading The Lost Hunt reminded me of was a little bit like the, I guess they were mostly backup stories, but the the Ben Riley Lost Years, where it would fill in the gaps in what he had been up to. Right. I, I did all of those, yeah, right, yeah. right. But yeah. but mm-hmm. it sort of felt like those are sort of bookends to to the the rest of that era. Very much so. The the trick with that was though, and I didn't want it just to be a nostalgia trip, and that's why we wanted to have this this, this new character and this whole illumination of Craven's backstory. We get to see a part of Peter's life that we've never seen before, and a major major event in his life that we've never seen before. So, you know, if it's just a nostalgia trip, it's boring. Who wants to do that just for the sake of nostalgia? You always want to tell a story that has some, you know, psychological and emotional value. And I, and I hope that we did and, that. And I'm, I guess I'm going to get into spoiler territory for somebody who hasn't read the series yet. So if you're one of our listeners, go out and buy it right now. Like buy it. Right. If it's all the pause, issues are out. Go buy it, read it, <laughs> unpause it and yep. come back. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> Bringing in the Wakanda elements. That was great. What kind of inspired you to bring in Wakanda? In there? I just sort of stumbled across it. You know, it may, I don't remember whether it was but when I was talking to my editor, Danny Chasm, about this or just because this is going to, it was going to bring in all this sort of the mystical aspects of Craven and his training and what he could do. And I, I had, I had the character of Asia Risha in my head, but linking it to Wakanda somehow made it richer and deeper. And then I dive into her backstory and you see, 
where she came from and how she left and that she's an exile like Craven as well. And it all really kind of meshed together. And I hope that it's a character that I could revisit in the future or that some other writers will want to revisit also down the line. Because I, I think she's a very interesting, fully fleshed out three-dimensional character. And the Wakanda element certainly adds to that. Yeah, I really appreciated the sort of distinction of, of I'm a healer, that sort of yes. moment of distinguishing herself from Craven. Yes, because for her, the hunting was not about hunting living beings. The hunting was hunting the demons within to, to find healing. You know, all these things that Craven had taken all took all these teachings and corrupted and used in service of his ego. It kind of seemed like Craven wanted to be her, like, but he couldn't he couldn't actually hunt the demons because he wasn't strong enough to fight the demons. So he attacks yes. other things that are weaker than him, like the animals yes. and like Spider-Man. Right. Of course, Spider-Man too yes. be too powerful. And her mistake was thinking that she could, you know, her big mistake was thinking that she could help him. Because that all went wrong and it just made it made things even worse, you know, and she she was haunted by that. And had it, we're giving her the whole thing away here. But um, even so, you can still even after hearing this, you can read the story. There's plenty of new Absolutely. things to discover. In oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, anyway, I'm glad you guys liked it because I had a, it was yeah. a really, really interesting story and it was fun to write. And I think the last time we spoke, it was either about to come out or maybe just the first issue was coming out. At that time, you talked about sort of the challenges of doing a Spider-Man story where he has no powers. He's not Spider-Man anymore, technically. Right. And I thought the the Wakanda elements bringing in the spider armor at the end was a brilliant way right. of sort of getting him back into I a version of the suit. I have to give all credit to that to my editor who said, "Let's do you know, let's use because I'm thinking we're, we have to have some big giant conflict at the end. Mm. How is Peter not going to get creamed no matter how hard <laughs> he tries? You know." And Danny said, "What about the spider armor, which I basically knew nothing about?" And then. It, the more I played with it, I thought, let's tie this, this new armor into Wakanda as well, as opposed to that the old spider. Because right. I, what I couldn't get my head around was, what has he got? The old spider armor up in the attic? He carries <laughs> it around with him when he moved to, he moved to Portland. Uh, you know, MJ, I got this armor. I'm going to keep it up in the attic for a while in case I ever right. need it, you know? Right. Not like he has the bat cave with the T-Rex and everything. Right. Exactly. Like- <laughs> exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that I think that worked out. That worked out pretty well. But the other thing that I think that I enjoyed was the fact that he's got no powers, this is kind of traumatic for him. And that's why, you know, the first the first scene where we first see him, he's running around on the rooftops in the middle right. of the night. It's like he's got this compulsion and he almost kills himself doing it because he can't do it anymore that way. So that was interesting to play with. And then, of course, as Gregor begins to invade his mind and bring up these personal demons and manifest them. Yeah, it was it was a fun story. I, I like what you did with the kind of like delayed PTSD he has. It's yes. kind of, it's kind of yeah. like how, you know, when you're in a car accident, it isn't like a day later where you start having the panic attack. Well, these are the things that, that I'm always looking for in a story. And uh, for those who don't know, as we continue to give away a <laughs> story. <laughs> again, go read the series. <laughs> yeah, you're listening, it's all on Comixology. Right, once again, right. Pause, pause this. Go read the story. Come back. <laughs> Are you back? Yep. Good. Okay. Right. <laughs> so what I thought, you know, has never been addressed, especially he was only what, maybe 15 when he became Spider-Man. Right. And he spends all these years in the most perilous situations imaginable. His life was on the line every day. But while you're busy being Spider-Man, you have to push that down and push because you can't, if you think you're going to die that day, you can't go out that day. Well, and he's also spent all those years hearing Uncle Ben in his head saying, this is your responsibility to do this. Right. Although Uncle Ben never said it was your responsibility to play right. off against mass murderers. You know? <laughs> right. Um, and I think Uncle Ben might have been proud and horrified at the same time. But so the idea was, OK, so that life is over now. 
And now all the that repressed trauma of being a 15-year-old kid fighting Dr. Octopus and Craven the Hunter and all these maniacs has got to come out. And that gave me the door into Peter. And then that opened the door into the Peter MJ thing because of their relationship. As they're in this new city, trying to build a real life for themselves without Spider-Man. That's why it was important for Mary Jane to have a job and be teaching theater and for Peter to have this new job teaching. The great thing about Spider-Man is that Peter Parker is a real person. Mask on or mask off, I always say this, and I'm sure every Spider-Man writer would say this. These are not Spider-Man stories. They're Peter Parker stories. It's about Peter Parker. You know, Batman stories feel like they're about Batman, you know? You, you can go issue whole runs of issues without him ever taking the mask off. Whereas, you know, even when the mask is on, it's Peter. It's mm-hmm. Peter Parker. And that's that's why I, I think why I can keep returning to that character, because there's some fundamental three-dimensional humanity to that character that I always I always connect to. If you haven't already paused and bought it, go go buy it. Go it's good. Right. Like, it'll be on trade eventually. Get it then if you can, but it's it's really good. It's available digital. It's in comic shops and, and anywhere else that, that has right. comics. And I think the trade is out in either May or June, I'm pretty sure. Oh, great. Yeah. Great. It's, you know, it's great seeing the marriage again. I, I'll just say that again. I I miss that marriage. <laughs> And, yeah. and, and in a way to sort of give that era of of Peter and Mary Jane a little bit of a happy ending. That, that yes. they sort of, uh, yes. things things feel more okay by the end of it. Right, exactly, exactly. And if since, you know, there are multiple universes, maybe in this universe, they do live happily ever after. Right? Go, read, go read this and then go read the Tom DeFalco Spider-Girl series. Great I was leader. just going to say that. It's almost like <laughs> the, door, the door, even though this in, this is in regular continuity. Yeah. You know, people saying, is right. this in regular continuity? Yeah, of course it is. But right. oh, but, the, but Mephisto erased the blah, blah, blah. But this is before Mephisto erased anything. So this happened as far as I'm concerned. You're you know? Right, right. Um, and, I, you know, I'm glad because I think I, from what I'm gathering from people's comments is that, that Marvel hasn't really want, addressed that marriage very much in the years since. No. So the fact that I was allowed to have them be married, it would have been worse if they weren't married. <laughs> right. Peter and a very, very pregnant marriage. There was that one there was that one miniseries that I guess came out of the, the Secret Wars event that was a sort of what if they had, they had the kid and stayed married and all that. But but other than that, there haven't been many stories that actually sort of look back to that era. I'm glad you mentioned DeFalco Spider-Girl stuff. That was great stuff. Oh, yes. One of my favorite <laughs> series as a kid. That was the, the series I had this description to. That's great. But, and, and speaking of favorites, every time we talk, it feels like something that you've written that I love that's not been reprinted comes up. And I just wanted to mention that I was recently revisiting some old Batman comics and Legends of the Dark Knight Grimm is one of my favorite Dick Grayson stories. Wow. Oh, thank you. And it, as far as I can tell, it's not been reprinted anywhere. It's never been reprinted. Even when it came out, it kind of flew under the radar. If I recall, it had great art by Trevor Von Eden. Wasn't Trevor Von Eden who did that? It was with Garcia Lopez inking. Yeah. I mean, think about that. Right. That alone. Right. Forget the story, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was that was a fun story. And it was, you know, sometimes it's a very strange thing. Stories will come out sometimes and they'll just hit the target. And I'm talking about the quality of the story, good, bad, and different. It hits the target and the audience responds to it. And other times it just sort of comes out. And I I, I could probably count on one hand the, the times over the years that anyone even mentioned that story to me, that even knew that story existed. Well, it was a fun story. It, it's a favorite. It, it, it's a Dick Grayson Robin story from a time when you didn't get many of those. Right. Um, that, right. that he was so solidly Nightwing at that point that, that you didn't look back like yeah. that. 
Yeah. And but I like it. It's got a little it. Oliver Twist thing to it going on there. Yeah. And, uh, and if listeners are curious, it is available digitally. I, I revisited it through the DC Universe app. Mm-hmm. It's it's there. All, all of Legends of the Dark Knight is there. But for some reason, even though other miniseries from that book were, were reprinted, that one hasn't yeah. been. And the reason you're bringing it up is because our friends Michael Bailey and Andy Leyland discussed it on their show, Overlook Dark Knight. Right. I, I read it as a kid, but but I was reminded of it listening to their show and, and went and revisited it myself. Yeah. And and it is just a lot of fun. Yeah. If I remember correctly, one of the things I was trying to do in that story is is kind of look at the the evolution of villainy in Batman comics, because the, when when the when Mother Grimm shows up at the beginning, she's like a 1966 Adam West Batman kind of villain. Yes. And by the end, we're dealing with a total psycho, you know, kind of very contemporary Batman villain. Right. And I right. wanted to play with that evolution there. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think you see her. She's like spanking a TV executive. Right. You know, and then the first issue ends with with, you know, Batman, all these balloons tied to him floating mm-hmm. up into the sky, you know, like the way a, a 66 Batman episode would end. Holy known unknown flying objects and then the story the story goes from there but yeah beautiful art that's what i really yes. remember is uh trevor is such a talented artist and to have garcia lopez inking it on top of that out of sheer curiosity all of this started with us talking about creature commandos because it's uh-huh. getting this this animated adaptation and maybe some live action appearances uh-huh. uh sheer curiosity have you ever seen the 1997 Justice League live action pilot that was loosely based on JLI. I believe I have. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I believe I have. <laughs> What's interesting is there was a period, and it must have been in the early 90s, where someone else had optioned Justice League. And I sat down, it was two or three days, me, Keith, Jeanette Kahn, and these two writers who were going to be writing the script, just bouncing ideas around. These things that you forget even happened and suddenly you spark it. Oh yeah, that happened. I forgot about that. And I remember getting a draft, it's too bad I didn't save it, getting a draft of a script that was actually quite good and very true to our series. Clearly not the one that ended up getting made. But you know, it was it was before the golden age of superheroes in terms of TV and movies. It just uh they didn't know they didn't quite know what to do with it. I, I was looking back at it and you know it, it's not good. It's not. But there are glimpses of things that are a little bit ahead of their time. You know, they they did talking head confessional segments with the heroes almost like the office. Right. Right. Which which actually in a contemporary context, if I was going to do a Justice League International story for TV, I might do something like that. And that's probably stuff that 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 we did somewhere in the in the book along the way, I'm sure. So it, it is interesting how it's there were ideas there. It's just they didn't have the budget or the resources to really pull it off. And you never know, as I've, I've learned from years of, of working in TV, you know, you have a guy sits down and writes a script and then there's a million other voices and hands that come along in the script that starts out and the script that ends up. And it's an interesting thing. 97 would have been around the time Schumacher took over the Batman movies. So there was a move back toward camp. Right. And I think that right. probably had an effect. Right. Yeah. It would have been hard to do an ongoing justice league television series at a t- at that time when they just did not have the spec, you know, you look now and, and you watch TV and you see these special effects mm-hmm. just when we were watching the Mandalorian the other night and just the flying around. It's like, Right. It's amazing. And once upon a time, couldn't do that. Or if you did, we all had to suspend disbelief and go, yeah, he's flying. I get it. You know, it's, it's George Reeves on the trampoline. Right, right, right. right but, you know, right. when I was a kid, well, George, I, mean, I believe George Reeves on the trampoline. But now it, 
we're, we're so accustomed to this stuff that you go back and look at the old stuff. It's like when people look at, you know, uh, the original Star Trek and go, oh, it was so cheesy. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't. They spent a fortune. Those were cutting edge special effects at the time that cost a lot sure. of money. It was a really expensive show. But special effects have come so far. Even something like, to, to name drop something else you're connected to, I grew up loving the Superboy TV series. Mm-hmm. And, sure. and for its time, those effects were fantastic. Yeah, and they, I'm sure that those budgets um, were about 75 cents. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, um, they did, they did and, well and, and, with and, what they had. They did well with they, what right. they had. And, and they put on screen DC characters that... You know, you'd never seen in live action before that uh, you wrote you wrote a Bizarro episode. Yeah. Uh, and to see Bizarro on television was, was sort of mind blowing to me as a kid. Yes, I always say they had one of the greatest Lex Luthers ever in Sherman Howard. He was fantastic. <laughs> well, let me see. How do I hate thee? Let me count the ways. I hate that dull look of integrity in your eyes. I hate your moronic pretty boy charm. I hate I hate that damn curl in the middle of your forehead. I hate your feeble-minded glaze of goodwill. Bottom line, I hate you because you hate me. I did a two-parter uh, that focused on Luther's childhood and how what happened to him. Uh, Superboy travels through Luther's memories of his childhood. And I'm very, very proud of the, the, the show. And Sherman Howard is just what an actor. You know, he was he was someone I thought, you know, you're going to be hearing about this guy forever. And I don't I know he, he went on to some other things, but he didn't become what I expected him to become. He's a very talented guy. Well, I was thrilled when Warner Brothers figured out whatever rights issues there were with that show, because now I have the whole thing on DVD. And, and it makes me so happy to be able to revisit you, it. Is that available in a general way or is it just on the Warner Brothers? Um, website? I believe because so. For a while, I know that Warner I, Brothers had a website where you could order things and was made to order kind of a thing. Right. And for the longest time, it was just season one that was available, which is really the worst season of because of, it's before they recast Luthor. It's, right. it's before a lot of those changes happen. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I believe you can even get it through like Amazon and oh. things. I don't know if you'll find it in, in retail storage, right. but you can order right. it online. Right. Oh, that's great. The iTunes app used to have them back in the day. Mm-hmm. And of course, back in the day, I had actual cassettes that they gave me of the episodes sure. that were made, but I don't have a cassette player <laughs> well, anymore, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> and, and for a while, what's his name? The the guy who played Superboy Gerard was, was sell, right, he was he was selling some of the tapes at conventions and oh, stuff. Really? Oh, that's so, interesting. That's uh, interesting. But before they were commercially available <laughs> and, and the rights were sort of dubious. <laughs> we do what we can, right? <laughs> right. So bringing it back to Creature Commandos, just okay. to Yes. Kind of there. I, I assume that the James Gunn announcement caught you completely by surprise. Completely by surprise. What's funny is about a month before I, I, I on Twitter, I said something to the effect, and I've said this before. I said, I think Creature Commandos would make a great movie because you could have a perfect fusion of a black and white universal monster movie of the 40s and a black and white horror movie, you know, uh, and put those two things together. And I, and I, and I even, I even kind of CC'd, if you can use whatever you call it when you do it on Twitter, the, the Twitter <laughs> of CC, uh, James Gunn on it, you know? And then what happened was, uh, the night before this thing was announced, I guess they must have done a press thing the day before. So a guy I know who writes for one of the comic book websites said, oh, can I ask you some questions about something? Uh, what? <laughs> you know, well, there's, they had this big announcement to you. What? And then he said, greet your commandos. And I was like, what? <laughs> it was like the last thing I would expect to come out of his mouth. You know, I'd expect I Vampire before Creature Commandos, really. Sure. And actually, an I Vampire movie, James Gunn, if you're listening, that's a good idea, too. 
<laughs> well, and, and that's a that's a title that also has really sort of survived yeah. and evolved and continued to exist. Yeah, a few years so, ago when I was writing know. Justice League Dark, I got to write that character again that I created at the very beginning of my career, which was really, really fun. There was a talk of a CW series for I Vampire at some point, wasn't there? Was there? This was zombie. I know that uh-huh. they did. There, there was talk of because I zombie those first few seasons did really, really well. Uh, there was briefly at least rumors uh-huh. that 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 was a thing they might spin well, off. May it still come to pass. <laughs> um, well, and if, if nothing else, it looks like because of these announcements, the Creature Commandos Collected Edition with all the Weird War Tales looks like it's getting a new yeah, edition. Yeah, I got in May. I got copies last week. They, they sent me a bunch of copies and I was like, brand, brand new cool. printing. So that's what you hope, you know, that, that, that the media thing feeds the print thing, feeds the media thing back and forth. And, and sometimes those reprints in the collected editions, I'm not always crazy about the coloring, mm. but, but I was looking at the digital version on the DC app and, and I actually really like the way it looks in, in sort of that modern format. Oh, good. Uh, I good. think, I think, I think they hold up very well. well you know, yeah. it's hard for me because if I go back and reread that stuff, I'm reading the work of a brand new writer who's learning his craft. So part of me can only see every flaw, you know, but, but I've learned over the years, there's another part of me that, that it used to be all I saw was the flaws, you know, and I couldn't look at the early stuff, but I realized over time, I have to give that guy, that version of me credit for how hard he worked and for the talent that he did have and that look at that he created something that all these years later is going to you know, turn into a TV show and maybe movies. That's pretty cool. So uh, I give my props to young me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and, and certainly there were editors and and uh, or there were people who saw that in you then. Right. So that's right, exactly. that's certainly something too. Exactly. And right, and credit to Pat, to Pat Broderick who drew that first story. And the truth is, I only wrote the first six. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like I wrote it for years either, but I created the concept, right. developed the characters, and I wrote the first six. But what happened uh, was at that same point, I got uh, an offer of, uh, of a freelance contract from Marvel. And mm-hmm. I always look back on this with actual, with amazement, because at the same time, Len invited me to be his assistant, to come on staff and be Len's assistant. And Jim Shooter offers me this freelance contract. And I'm not, I haven't been in the business for very long. To have that choice that early in my career was an amazing thing. And, wow. and I have to thank my son because the reason I ultimately decided to go with the freelance contract is my son was uh, had just been born. And so my choice was, do I go into an office every day or do I get to work at home and be around and raise my son? And I made the choice. And I find anytime we make a choice in favor of our children, it's in favor of our lives in general, you know, and the quality of our lives. Uh, so with the freelance contract, but that was why I only did like six six issues of weird of Creature Commandos and six issues of I Vampire, and and then I went over to Marvel. Well, we, we're we're thankful you did. Yes, absolutely. And it's <laughs> funny. I realized looking back, that's one of the reasons why when I took it took over Defenders again, I don't think it was conscious. It became essentially became the original version of Justice League Dark. It became a supernatural mm. super team because I had spent the past you know year and a half or whatever it was writing stories for weird war tales and house of mystery. So I had monsters <laughs> coming out of my ears. So I was suddenly right. like locked into this supernatural thing. And, dis- and what I discovered was, even though maybe it hadn't been my passion, I was good at it. 
And every time I return to the supernatural, I realize it, 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 it opens up a little creative avenue in my brain that doesn't get tapped otherwise. A couple of years ago, I did a Constantine animated movie called Constantine City of Demons. It's yes. flat out horror. I am not necessarily someone who wants to read flat out horror. Uh, but I found out that I'm pretty good at it, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and it, it's, it's interesting. So I have returned because, more because of those books than anything else returned to the horror genre. My novella that came out uh, last year called The Excavator, which I urge everyone to please rush out and buy right now and get it on Amazon, uh, is it straddles the line between sort of Twilight Zone supernatural and horror, you know, and it's 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 in that pocket. And I realized I'm very comfortable in that pocket because those stories allow you to explore uh, psychology, spirituality, all these things. All the demons in our psyche can become manifest when you're dealing in in the in, in those genres, you know. Uh, and so I, I've discovered over the years that I'm actually very comfortable in a genre that wasn't necessarily my passion when I started out. And that's what I always say to my writing students. You have to be open to these surprises. You know, maybe you're not into horror and someone and you're starting out and someone says we well, need vampire stories you damn well better get off your ass and write a vampire story. Do you want to be a writer? Do you want to work? Do you want to get paid? Write the vampire story. Write a werewolf story, whatever they need. And, and you will learn. And you may discover that you have an affinity for something that you didn't even know was in your wheelhouse. It's kind of a it's cool good. thing. It's kind of like how, cool. um, when, when people say like, well, I want, a, I want a story that does this. I want a story that does this. But I can't find anything that does that. Well, write it. <laughs> <laughs> right. you, you you obviously found a hole to go for it right exactly we're in we're in command you know we're making it up we're literally <laughs> making it up we can make up anything that's great well sir thank you so much for joining us once again we'll, we always a pleasure to talk a pleasure, to you yes. pleasure. Like, again Very like much, i said sir. i never expected i'd be talking about creature commandos all these years later <laughs> but i don't i'm not knocking it either i'm very very grateful i'm very grateful i look forward to seeing what they do with it apparently james gunn has, has written all the episodes for the first season of this animated show that's what i read anyway which is right well and and he did the the peacemaker series which i thought was very well yes. done so yeah, yeah so hopefully that's a sign of things to come we'll see and and you know i know that they're 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 using a lot of other characters but i hope that we get to see the original characters in that world in some way shape or form in this series so yeah it does look like they're sort of mixing up with some other weird war characters the gi robots right, in there right, right 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 um maybe some of the new 52 agents of shade characters right but hopefully it will still be in that lineage that started with those original guys during world war ii and i'd like to see Absolutely. some nice black yeah. and white flashbacks to world war ii <laughs> yeah see see velcro right, and, right. and some of the other right. characters exactly yeah. exactly it, it, it is the ongoing policy of our podcast always be punching nazis so yes <laughs> <laughs> well thank you again for joining us we my really pleasure appreciate my it. pleasure good to talk to you both and before we forget april, april fools, fools. <laughs> that's right tomb believers it's been tomb of ideas the whole time you didn't think we were really going to change our whole format and focus on a whim did you except that time we did oh yeah yeah but but that was different D different for example that was October. Right, right, right. <laughs> but if you, lovely listeners, want to tell us what bastards we are, you can feel free to do so. <laughs> you can reach us at our email address. It's tombofideas at gmail.com. And our 
Twitter is at Tomb of Ideas. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. Our Instagram is at Tomb of Ideas. And our Pinterest... Wait, no, sorry. That's a step too far, I think. That's a step too far. I mean, maybe that's just a step into the future. (laughs) Uh, Oh, right. Well, when, when Twitter burns down and Facebook implodes, we'll all be on Pinterest. There you go. But until then... You can find our entire back catalog on Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X. You'll find all our episodes along with a bunch of other great shows like Twitch of the Death Nerve, Horror Business, and Cinema Smorgasbord. So check out Cinepunks.com. And by all means, let us know how much you hate us for spending a whole episode on the Creature Commandos. Or if you think it's awesome... Let us know, and maybe we can find some other outlet for some of these weird one-off discussions. (laughs) And, of course, be sure to join us next time on Tomb of Ideas, where we'll be looking at... uh, Hold on, Trey? Yeah? Um, I thought we we gave up the whole we're a DC podcast now thing. Right. Then why does this comic I'm looking at look like the Justice League? Well, see, the thing is... Is there's an infinite multiverse, right? Uh-huh. Reality-shifting shenanigans. Guys, we're doing Heroes Reborn. Not the bad one, the recent good one. Yeah, the 2021 Heroes Reborn written by Jason Aaron, which, of course, feature yes. the Squadron Supreme. That's right. And the artist on, I think, all of the main book is Ed McGinnis. And we're getting as just about as close as we can get without doing the DC versus Marvel crossovers to doing DC versus Marvel. <laughs> there are some good DC versus Marvel crossovers. I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. I, I've got the trade paperback of that event on my shelf right now. So do I. It gave us amalgam, and for that, I'll always be thankful. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I was thinking JLA Avengers. Oh, that's the better story. For that's sure. definitely a better story. <laughs> I've, I've got all the single issues of that one. I've got the trade, which apparently is worth a pretty penny now. Yep. Sure is. Fucking vultures. But yes. So next time. We're going to launch into what's going to be a multi-episode discussion. I don't remember right now how many episodes. I think but, four. But four sounds right, because we're going to do the tie-ins, because the tie-ins do matter in this one. And the tie-ins are fucking awesome. I'll, just, I'll say that now. I would actually not want to do this if we weren't doing the tie-ins. Oh, I definitely would not do this if we weren't doing the tie-ins. But more of that in the upcoming episodes. That's right. So stay tuned, and we'll be diving into Heroes Reborn. Starting with Heroes Reborn, number one. Heroes Reborn, Hyperion and the Imperial Guard, number one. Heroes Reborn, Peter Parker, the Amazing Shutterbug, number one. And Heroes Reborn, number two. Until next time, Tomb Believers. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb Believers. Excelsior! <laughs>